I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller, and this episode is the finale of the winter season. At the end of the last episode, I promised that Zane would be doing a wrap-up interview with me about the things I've learned from my guests over the past few months. But life intervened, and Zane and I weren't able to get into the studio together. So instead, I'm using a talk I gave this past Monday at the Lake Oswego Public Library called The Politics of Climate Change. As you'll hear in the recording, I push off the politics part until the second half in order to discuss one of my favorite subjects, the human condition. I try examining the deep-seated reasons why climate change poses a uniquely difficult problem for human beings, then I look specifically at the American political system to address why it's been so difficult for the United States to adopt a proactive climate change agenda. This is a longer-than-usual episode, but it's also the last one before a two-week hiatus for spring break. We'll be back on March 30th for the spring season kickoff with another guest interview. Because the talk is so lengthy, I'm going to announce the song here instead of at the end. This week we have an original work written and recorded in 2009 by a band I'm sometimes part of, along with the musical genius Victor Von Beck. It's called The Good Bidding of Aquaman, and it's by Guitarzan. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy my talk on the politics of climate change. As always, thanks for listening. I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight, and now that I'm the, I guess, the final speaker of the Lake Oswego Reads for 2020, there's uh, a little pressure on me, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to go big. I'm going to talk about the politics of climate change, of course, that's the title of my talk, but I, I want to start off by talking about the human condition. And part of the human condition is, of course, what we face right now. That's why my talk is about climate change, is that one of the things that we know is that there is a very serious human-made problem that is potentially destroying our ability to live on this planet. And that is what we face right now. But the question of the human condition really has been around for thousands of years. Philosophers have been asking, what is the human condition? What kind of being is the human animal? And that question has produced a lot of different answers. Where the rational animal where the political animal, where the spiritual or religious animal, where the laboring animal, where the freedom-loving animal. There are not as many different answers as there are different philosophers, but there are an awful lot of different ways of answering that particular question. I've thought about this question a lot. I started off as a philosophy major when I was a young person, when I thought that I could figure out how the world worked by just using my brain. <laughs> and, and I think back on that, uh, that naive young man, and I'm, I'm actually really grateful because it is an important question. It's really informed 
how I've gone about studying politics, how I've gone about really, you know, trying to understand what's going on around me. What are we? What is the human animal? And what kind of condition do we face? How do we take what we are and approach the universe as we face it? I'll enter the philosophical rat race. Human beings are the problem-having animal. We have problems, and it's not that other animals don't have problems. In fact, all living things have essentially two fundamental problems. One is how to survive, and you don't get to choose that problem. That problem is just foisted upon you by the nature of the universe. And then the second problem is the other one that evolution gives us, which is how do we get our genes into the next generation? So all animals and all living, actually all living things have those two problems. When I say human beings are the problem having animal, what I mean is that because of the development of our intellectual capacities, because of the massive growth of our frontal lobe, we have some abilities that other animals either don't have or have only in a sort of smaller form. And one of those is the ability to see ourselves not where we are in the very present moment, but to see ourselves into the future, to picture ourselves, to imagine, to take the things that we see around us and to draw conclusions as to what's going to happen in the future. And what that means is that we have problems that we can see. I'm full now. I just went to a lovely time meal with my kids who are right here, by the way. I just want to acknowledge my children here being supportive. They were only slightly forced to come here. That's, that's, that's their condition. The human condition for those two is that they were asked politely to not refuse to come tonight. Uh, but I, I, I had a nice meal. I had a nice big bowl of soup. And I am satiated and, and full and well-nourished. But I can picture myself being hungry again. In fact, I know that I will be. And that's a problem. Now, we're the problem having animal because we can picture that. I can picture myself being cold. I can picture myself being lonely. I can picture myself getting older and having trouble moving around. I can picture my children growing up and moving out of the house. And that's actually, that's not a problem so much. That's a solution. <laughs> I only really only bring them along because it's the only way I get to make fun of them directly. Uh, but we can see all these things. We can place ourselves into the future because of our brains and the capacity that we have. I've never died, but I've, I know people have died, and how do I know I'm going to die? Well, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to die. I'm pretty sure we're all going to die. How do I know that? I haven't seen, I don't have the evidence that I'm going to die, I don't have the evidence that anybody in this room is going to die, but I can confidently say that all of us at some point, and I hope it's really far away, we're going to die. That's a problem. The reason I bring this up is that I think that all of the different versions of the kind of animal we are, the political animal, the religious animal, the laboring animal. I think these are all ways that different philosophers have noticed that human beings have and then solve their problems in certain ways. I'm not sure how religion developed. I'm not going to make any claim about the origins of religious thinking or the origins of humans' ideas about God and about the afterlife. But one thing I think that we can say is that if you're going to die, and that's a problem, mortality definitely strikes me as a problem. The idea that there is an afterlife, that I will be reincarnated, that I'll go to a place called heaven, that I will join my ancestors, that something waits beyond life for me, that's a solution. Human beings were really good at picturing the future and what problems we're going to have, what forms of potential suffering, how we might be dissatisfied or hungry or hurt or alone or dead, but we're also extremely adept 
and this is, I think, what really makes for the diversity of all of these different philosophers' answers, were extremely adept at solving problems by coming up with some, usually, some kind of system. Right? And most of the answers to what kind of animal are human beings, were the political animal, were the religious animal, were the social animal, were the laboring animal, most of those answers refer to certain kinds of systems. Systems of production, economic systems of distribution, religious systems, political systems, societal systems, institutions, cultures. We, as part of our approach to solving the problems that we can have because we can picture ourselves into the future, is that we create systems for solving those problems. One of the problems with this problem-solving ability is that, ironically, we often create new problems for ourselves by solving the problems that we had in the first place. If you're wondering, if you're like, okay, why is he going on about the problem-solving animal? You probably have a sense that I'm coming around to the issue of climate change. Really, there's two big things that I think come out of this for the issue that I'm here to talk about, which is the politics of climate change. One is that it's pretty obvious that climate change is a problem that we've created for ourselves as we have solved a number of very important problems for ourselves in the past scarcity, starvation, the desire for a more secure life, that the systems of production, the way that human beings have learned how to utilize natural resources effectively and efficiently exploit those natural resources to become more and more productive, that have enabled us to essentially have you know, a pretty tremendous standard of living compared to not only a few thousand years ago. I won't say problem solved, but very effectively addressing the issue of scarcity and starvation and discomfort that human beings, because we can picture ourselves, even though I'm, you know, I'm, I'm full on soup, but I know I'm going to be hungry again. Like, oh good, I'm glad that there's, I have a refrigerator uh, and there's going to be leftovers in that refrigerator and there's actually already food. That problem is solved. Climate change is a perfect example of what happens unintentionally often when we solve some of our problems is that we have new problems that emerge. This particular problem is of a type that makes it extremely tricky. It's a, a kind of a classic collective action problem. And some of you have probably heard of collective action problems and I'll just quickly review the nature of a collective action problem. A collective action problem exists when there's what's considered to be a either collective good or sometimes it's called a public good or in the case of this particular one, it's a public bad or a collective bad. A collective good or bad is something that individuals face, but they can't opt out of it or into it. They can be excluded from it. So public goods are things that you get as a result of just being in a particular kind of public. The classic example of a public good is national security. If you live in the country that is being protected by some kind of military and or police force, no matter what you do or don't do to contribute to that, you can't be excluded from that. You can be thrown out of the country, you can be rounded up and taken away, but when you're in that territory, let's say that you have never paid any taxes, and of course national security requires military and or police, and that doesn't come for free, and it usually doesn't run on voluntary contributions, you cannot pay taxes. You can either evade your taxes or you can be a person who's been exempted from taxes, yet you cannot be excluded from enjoying that particular public good. One of the things about collective action problems, and they come with goods or bad, because uh, environmental decay, any kind of environmental problem, is usually also a collective action problem. It's a public bad. Pollution 
you don't necessarily have to contribute to pollution. In fact, you could ride your bicycle and walk and never drive a car and never take a bus or a train. You could have zero carbon footprint. You could do nothing that produces any kind of obnoxious chemical in the world around you. And yet, if others are doing it, you are not exempt, just like the person who doesn't pay taxes to provide for national security can't be made unsafe. You cannot live in a clean world if the world is being dirtied in some particular way. The public bads are as non-excludable as the public goods. The way to solve collective action problems is force. You have to force people to do a certain thing. Uh, in the case of public goods, if we're going to have the public good, you tend to have to force people to contribute to it in some way. It usually will be taxation, but it doesn't have to be taxation. It could be that you force people to do labor, that you force people to contribute some kind of uh, innovation. But force is typically the only way that you can solve a collective action problem. The same thing is true for public bads. How do you get people to refrain from contributing to the public bad? Well, you think, well, I don't want to live in a polluted environment. Other people don't want to live in a polluted environment. Why wouldn't you just voluntarily not pollute? I don't want to live on a planet that can't sustain the human species, so why not just not emit carbon, which is contributing to our inability to live on the planet? But of course, if you refrain from the polluting behavior and other people don't refrain, then you're going to suffer anyway even if you don't contribute to it. So why go through the effort and often the expense and the, the inconvenience of deciding that you're not going to do something to solve a problem that you can't solve? This is the problem with usually environmental decay is that it doesn't take too many people to say, ah, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to throw my garbage in the river or I'm just going to put my chemicals into the river or going to burn my plastic and let the obnoxious fumes go out into the environment. It's not a big deal. If I only do it, it's not going to be a problem. And that, that is true. If only you as an individual did it, it wouldn't be a problem. So why refrain? And if you refrain and other people do it, you're not going to get the benefit. There's this weird rational trap to these kinds of collective action problems one of the problems with solving climate change is that it's not going to be solved probably by just purely rational individual action. People are making that choice. Some political units are choosing to address the issue. And in fact, right now here in Oregon, some of you are probably aware, there is a climate cap and trade bill that is pending in the Oregon legislature. And if Oregon passes this, it will be one of the few states to take this measure not enough to contribute to a solution to climate change, but part of it is that, okay, well, we don't want to be the problem. Even with the collective action problem, there will almost always be individuals or groups of people who say, well, you know what, I know that I can't solve it on my own by refraining from this, but I still don't want to contribute to the problem. I want to be part of the solution. The problem is, is that there's not enough of those people, and typically in a collective action problem situation, there aren't. The problem won't get solved you will have to bear the burden of trying to solve it, and yet also you will not be able to solve it. Oregon will pass this law, and it won't solve climate change unless every other government or some huge percentage of governments on the planet actually go about passing some kind of restriction on carbon emissions. That's one dimension of the problem. We've created this for ourselves by being stupendously productive, and I think it's really always a good idea. Whenever I think about climate change, I remind myself it's the downside of something that's really good. Human beings are really good 
at being productive and at meeting our basic needs as well as more. Now, there are obviously other problems that have been created as a result of the systems of production and the economic systems of distribution that we've created to solve the problem of scarcity. The other big one would be economic inequality and then the sort of social and cultural problems that result from that. So human beings are really, we're really good at solving problems and we're also really good at creating new problems. Economic inequality is not a collective action problem because if I personally want to reduce economic inequality, I can make that choice. I can give it away to charity, I can start a charitable fund, I can just give some of my money to people who have less than me. And while that won't solve the whole problem, that actually will make a contribution. Whereas if I stop emitting greenhouse gases, it makes a, a really tiny bit of contribution, but overall it just makes more room for other people to pollute and to emit carbon. It doesn't move towards a solution. So economic inequality is a problem we've created by solving one of our problems, but it is not a collective action problem. Doesn't mean it's not thorny. Doesn't mean it's not a difficult one to address. It just means that it doesn't have the same structure to it. Now, the other feature of our problem-solving and problem-creating nature that is relevant to the politics of climate change is that any solution to the climate change problem is going to come through a political system that, in the case of the United States at least, is the solution to a big set of problems and a pretty amazing solution to a big set of problems, but it itself has generated obstacles to solving this particular policy problem. I want to note that there are obstacles in our political system to solving the climate change crisis. But as I pointed out with the collective action problem, it's not the only obstacle. One of the reasons why we have to rely on our political system to solve this is that climate change is a collective action problem, and generally the only solution is force. The option that we have for enforcing the behavior that will rescue human beings' ability to live on this planet is through our political system. We can't rely necessarily on other systems of force. We're not going to rely on, say, uh, mafias or warlords <laughs> or any other system of force that exists out in the world. We have to rely on our political system. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. three pretty big problems that our political system solved. One, how do you restrain a tyrannical government? That was a big question that the founding generation addressed. The American Revolution was a revolution against a tyrannical, monarchical, unjust, unrepresentative government. If you're going to rebel against that, 
you're going to want to create a new political system that addresses that problem. Two, the founding generation, they kind of locked themselves into this idea of representative democracy. Instead of saying, well, we're going to rebel against this and we're going to create a new type of political system, but we're going to use old models, we'll create a monarchy or an aristocracy. Because they were committed to uh, representative democracy, which is one answer to how do you control a tyrannical government, they also were committed to the project of letting the people rule themselves. That's one of the solutions to tyranny, to a tyrannical monarchy, but that raises a whole set of problems. If the people are going to rule themselves, can they do it? And that actually, for the founding generation, that was a pretty open question. I mean, they were hopeful and they wanted to make it work, but there really was a, it's an experiment. Can the people actually rule themselves in a sustainable fashion? And then, of course, if you say, well, okay, we're going to suspend our disbelief or our skepticism and say, for now, we're going to say, yes, the people can rule themselves, then you have the big question of how. How are they going to rule themselves? That is a question where you're going to have to actually then design a specific kind of system. And when you create a new system, you're going to solve a problem, but you're going to create new problems. The third question that the founding generation asked that our political system was an answer to is, how do we preserve human freedom? That was related to the question of how do we make sure we don't have a tyrannical government, but it's a more specific version of it. Even if we just take the second two questions, how do we get the people to rule themselves and how do we preserve freedom? Those are two things that might themselves not go together very well. The delegates to the Constitutional Convention, they wanted to do both of those things. And as they started, I think they probably walked in aware of the difficulties. But as they started to discuss the specifics of how the people were going to rule themselves and how we could make sure that individual freedom was preserved, it was a trickier and thornier problem than it might seem. Most things in the world, and especially in the design of political systems, are trade-offs. In this particular case, the more you empower the majority to rule on behalf of the people, the more you're likely to create a problem for individuals having freedom because there's the problem of the tyranny of majority. We can't solve that particular problem. You can only make a certain set of choices that involve certain kinds of trade-offs. One of the things that representative democracy commits you to is frequent elections. That is a feature of our system that seems like a good thing, and it absolutely is a good thing. How do you make sure the people rule themselves? How do you prevent tyrannical government? You have frequent elections, and you allow the people to decide relatively routinely who gets to make those decisions so that the people who are making those decisions can't just become oppressive because they know they have to come back up for their essentially their job re-interview every couple of years and it means that they have to pay attention to what it is that people want so we have an answer to how is it that people are going to rule themselves we have a system of frequent elections one thing about human beings is that we are very complex we are long-term thinkers, we can picture death, we can picture hunger, we can picture all kinds of stuff, and we have the capacity to plan long-term. But we also tend to have the impulse to think short-term. We're both long-term and short-term thinkers. And everybody in this room has done both long-term and short-term planning, and it's an important thing to do, right? You want to have your retirement plan, uh, want to have your five-year plan, you want to know what you're going to be doing this summer for your vacation, but you also need to know, like, okay, what, what am I going to do tomorrow? And how am I going to get my daughter to soccer practice? And how am I going to get my son to his driving class? These are real examples of things I've had to deal with <laughs> recently. Because evolutionary 
problem that we face, that we share with all living things. How do you survive? How do you get your genes into the next generation? Those are big problems, and they have, a lo they have long term implications, but they have to be dealt with in the short term. So human beings, because of the way we've evolved and the way that all living things have evolved, we've been hardwired to think short term. We have the capacity to think long term, and we all know that we have to balance our short term thinking with our long term plans. Why do you not just eat that pie that's right in front of you? Why do you not eat then the cake that's right next to the pie? Because in short term, like your body says, you, know, you want to get those nutrients. And in fact, we're hardwired. Part of the reason why, you know, if you feel like, oh, why do I have no willpower? You're hardwired not to have willpower. Uh, I hope you know that. Evolution did that to you. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it's not your problem, right? Um, it's not your fault that you want that stuff that's right in front of you, the cake and then the pie right next to it and all that stuff. And it's not your fault you don't want to exercise or run. You're not supposed to run. You're not supposed to eat a cake and then jog it off. Because the reason why you're, you're running in nature is to run away from a threat. If you're running voluntarily, you're throwing away energy. If you bypass the cake or the pie that's in front of you, you're throwing away energy. And we are hardwired not to do that. The imperatives that drive us, that are deeply embedded in our way of thinking, are short-term imperatives. And that's not our choice. Uh, and it wasn't evolution's choice either. It just happens to be that that's how you survive and get your genes into the next generation, is by making these particular kinds of short-term choices. Politics is played on a relatively short scale. Elections happen every two years, every four years for a lot of offices. The US Senate has a six-year cycle, which is a pretty long cycle, but it's also pretty rare. Two and four years, that's very short term. If you're going to do something for the world, if you're going to enter the political system that has been created for us to solve those really big problems, how do we prevent tyranny? How do we let the people rule themselves? How do we make sure that people get to make free choices and have individual liberty? We created a system, and if you're going to participate in that system, if you're going to run for office, if you're going to help somebody run for office, if you're going to donate money to them, if you're going to donate your time and energy to getting them elected, you're doing that because the political system is where you go to solve problems. That's why people get into politics. I've been teaching politics for a really long time, and one of the most common conceptions of politicians is that they're self-centered, amoral, power-hungry people. I will not say that that is not true for some percentage of, of <laughs> politicians, but almost everybody that I've talked to who's been in politics in one form or another, and particularly the people who do the very hardest thing to personally do, which is to run for office, to put yourself out there, to subject yourself to that kind of scrutiny, that kind of criticism, that kind of constant exposure, to expose your family to that as well. That is a really hard thing. And most people who do that do it because they want to make the world a better place. They want to solve problems. They see the problems like a good human being or problem havers. They believe they have a solution or at least they have some form of a solution and they want to contribute their time and energy to it. You get into the political system, and what do you have to do in order to be a problem solver? You have to win. Because the elections happen every two or four years, you have to win again. If you want to solve a problem, if you want to, say, contribute to a sane, proactive climate policy to try to avert the climate change crisis, you have to win, and you have to keep winning. And what do you have to do to win? Well, you have to please the voters, and people while they're capable of thinking long-term, they tend to respond to more short-term things. So you have to do the things that people find to be the most important. What people tend to find the most important are the things that are right in front of them 
and also the things that are the very worst and the very most problematic. If there are wildfires out in the Cascades, people are going to be worried about those more than they're worried about impending climate change, which, while it's getting pretty close, is still farther over the horizon. If there's an economic crisis, if there's some kind of deadly disease floating around somewhere, <laughs> like these are the things that you're going to care about. And elected officials have to respond to what people care about. If voters cared about the long term and stayed focused on long term questions and were worried about getting out ahead of things, then elected officials would respond to that. But the fact is, is that that's not the human tendency, and it's not that human beings are bad. It's not that Americans have a short attention span or we care more about who is going to win the latest reality TV bachelor show. Americans are human beings, and we tend to see what's in front of us. So part of what I was brought here to, to talk about is why is it that there's a problematic politics to getting a proactive and sensible climate change policy agenda enacted. One of the problems is short-term thinking, and that it's hardwired into us by evolution. It's also then hardwired into our political system because we have frequent elections. This is one of those things that's so terrible because it's, it's, it's a trade-off. If only frequent elections were just problematic, if only they blocked our ability to have long-term, sensible, proactive policy solutions to the big problems that we as a society and that we as a human race face, then we would get rid of, or we could easily say, well, let's just have elections every 10 years. Or let's just have a one-party system that has the same leaders in place for 20, 30, 40 years. Right? Let's, just, let's just follow the China model and uh, have a one-party dictatorship. Because frequent elections are getting in the way of long-term policy. That's true. Of course, the downside of a one-party system is that it creates the possibility for corruption, for oppression, for a dictatorial government. It certainly doesn't create conditions whereby the people can rule themselves very effectively. Frequent elections are a good thing. They're a great thing, except they also are a terrible thing. They get in our way. This is one of the reasons why I'm often very torn about the kinds of things that I analyze as a political science professor, is that it's almost never that it's like, well, there's the bad, let's just tear the bad out. Very occasionally there's something that's just clearly wrong and that we can say, well, let's try to fix this thing. But almost everything involves trade-offs. More specifically, we don't just have a democratic system with frequent elections. We also have a system of individual rights that block the elected majority from doing certain things. And that's also a good and bad situation. It's good because when you're the one whose rights are about to be trampled and the Bill of Rights protects you, you're like, see, that's good. It's bad when you're part of the democratically elected majority and you're like, but why can't we do what we want to do? We're the majority. We have, let's say, 75% of the people want to put in place some kind of censorship. That's the community sentiment. Why do we not get to do that? Pesky First Amendment. It's, it's a good thing because it protects your freedom of speech. It's a bad thing because it gets in the way of what could be a, a tremendously large consensus of people. Now, individual rights are not really the source of the problem for a green policy agenda. So I'll just note that and we don't need to go more in depth to it. Where could we potentially get a proactive, or at this point, it's you know, kind of not even marginally proactive. It's, it's really, at this point, just about reactive policy to address climate change. We have to get it through our elected officials. Now, we could get it through the executive branch, which has one elected official at the top, the president, who then makes a bunch of other appointments. And so what if we elected a president who was committed to a very proactive, very aggressive 
climate change policy agenda. One of the things about our system is that in addition to having frequent elections, we also have part of the solution to how do we protect rights, how do we empower the people, how do we prevent a tyrannical government, is that we also have a system of checks and balances. There really is, despite the growing power of the presidency and despite the size and reach of the executive branch, there really is only so much that can be done for something new through the executive branch. Anything that needs to be done in the executive branch had to be first authorized by Congress in order to have a Department of Education, which at the federal level gives out funding for educational research, it gives out funding to address inequalities in educational uh, attainment and educational resources, it also uh, gives out money for, so that students can afford higher education. In order to have a Department of Education, for the president to appoint a secretary of education who can then do an awful lot, Congress had to first authorize the creation of that department, had to create some authorizing legislation. The Primary and Secondary Education Act, that was a big policy. In order for the executive branch to take action and to then exert the kind of power that we're used to seeing from the executive branch, Congress has to first take action. For the executive branch to be able to be aggressive, and proactive and comprehensive in dealing with climate change really requires a major piece of legislation. The Obama administration did as much as it could and had a clean power plan and had a climate change plan, but the ways in which the executive branch could move in that direction were highly attenuated because Congress had not yet created a statutory structure through which that kind of policy could be implemented at the presidential level. So we need Congress to act. What keeps Congress from acting? This is a thing that I talk about in every class I teach. Why can Congress not take action? Because we have a status quo-oriented political system. The reason we have a status quo-oriented political system is partly by design and partly by accident. The design is that the delegates to the Constitutional Convention were definitely very interested in creating a representative democracy but they were also somewhat wary of representative democracy. They were a little concerned about the people. They wanted to create a system that empowered the people, but not a ton, and that made sure that there were checks on the majority so that the people didn't exert too much power. But the real reason why Congress doesn't act very effectively until the problem is really big, and the reason why it's very difficult to get a major piece of legislation, to get a new program, to get a new statutory grant, is because we have a bicameral legislature, and that is just a fancy term, not that fancy actually, but it's a fancy term for two houses. It takes a human rule-making institution and divides it into two different parts. If you want to solve a problem, the best thing to do is to ask a really smart person to solve that problem and give them all the power and resources they need to solve that problem. Of course, that's dangerous, right? Because then that person could abuse it. But if you want to solve a problem, that's the best thing. If we had a climate change fearing king of the world, we could have a very proactive, very aggressive climate change policy. If we had a king of America who said, oh, we're destroying our ability to live on this planet and pretty soon it's going to be irreversible, we better do something now, I don't have to ask anybody, here's the agenda enact it. That would be the most effective way of solving that problem. The second most effective way of solving a problem is establishing a committee to solve that problem. The third most effective way of solving a problem is to get a large gathering of people together to solve that problem. A committee is at least relatively small and you can kind of know everybody and you can interact and, and there's a small amount of ideas. But if you get together a large group of people 
then it's going to be even more problematic. There's only one way to make that large group even more ineffective, and that's to divide that large group into two large groups that have to agree on the solution, but they work on it separately. And that's what a bicameral legislature is. A bicameral legislature is a large group of people divided into two groups who have to agree on the same problem. Now, there are other features of our system besides the bicameral legislature that make that particularly problematic. If you create two groups of people who are relatively similar to each other, it's going to be less problematic. If you create two groups of people who are relatively different from each other, see the world differently, then you're really in trouble. They're going to have to agree letter by letter, word by word on a solution to that problem, and they're coming at it from a very different angle, and there's large groups on both sides. That is really, that's, anybody who wants to solve a problem is not going to design that system. Our Congress is exactly this. It is two different groups of people, very large groups, 100 on one side and 435 on the other, who have two different perspectives. We tend to see politicians as kind of all just a bunch of, you know, basically me, a bunch of white guys. But there are a lot of differences. The differences between the House of Representatives and the Senate are pretty significant, even though on TV they look the same, right? Mm -hmm. If you trotted out the average senator and you trotted out the average member of the House of Representatives, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two of them. After 25 years of watching politics, I tend to be able to pick them out because senators tend to be a little more relaxed looking, a little more dignified. And the reason for that is because they only have to run every six years. They don't have to go back to the people, but every six years. And that's a break. That's a long break. If you're in the House, you have to go back every two years. So the design of our bicameral legislature is such that, one, it's taken a, deciding, a decision-making apparatus, Congress, and it's divided it into two different groups of people. And then with several of the choices, has made those two types of people quite different. Two years and six years. Members of the Senate represent an entire state. Members of the House of Representatives represent a geographically distinct district. What that means is there's a di very different perspective. Again, take your average 51-year-old white guy and say, well, you're a senator. Okay, great. You're a member of the House of Representatives. Great. It seems like the same person, and it could even be the same person. But in order to do what politicians have to do to, to solve problems, they have to win elections, right? you have to win in the electorate that you're given. If you're a senator and you have to win in a statewide office, you tend to have to be more attentive to diverse perspectives. You tend to have to pay attention to the urban and the rural areas. You tend to have to pay attention to people who are both conservative and liberal and certainly moderate. Senators, and this is less and less true, but still, it's still relatively true, tend to be more moderate, they tend to be more open to a variety of different perspectives, and they tend to think in terms of a larger population. So that when they think through problems, they think, okay, well, how is that going to affect the cities and how is that going to affect the rural area? If you're a member of the House of Representatives who represents an urban area, you don't have to think about rural areas. In fact, you probably shouldn't think about rural areas, because if you vote for or push for policies that privilege the rural areas over the urban areas that you represent, your constituents are going to be irked, and they're not going to vote for you again. And that is as it should be. So the fact that we have two different election cycles, two different types of constituencies, makes it problematic. 
Now, if you additionally, and you know, it doesn't, it hardly needs to be made worse uh, uh, in terms of getting a system of decision making that's going to be proactive and aggressive at dealing with a collective action problem of a global order like climate change is. What you then can make it even worse is if you get factional differences within the groups of people in each of these particular houses. And this has happened by kind of development of political dynamics and also development of political demographics that in Congress there are essentially two different types of representatives. There are four different versions of them. There are moderate Democrats, moderate Republicans, and there are extremist or you know, liberal Democrats and, cons and, and very conservative Republicans. The difference between those two is that within each party, the more extremist versions tend to see the world in much more stark terms. They tend to think about problems through an ideological lens because the people who voted for them and who will keep them in office tend to think about things in, in terms of the big issues. If you're a moderate version of a Democrat or a Republican, you tend to be more pragmatic. You tend to see the world not through an ideological or a party brand, but through the question of, well, how do we serve the most people? How do we get common sense solutions for a group of people who lives in the same area but are different and have different perspectives? When you have ideologues and call them pragmatic moderates, and these maybe aren't the best labels, but I'll stick with them at the uh, risk of being, being inaccurate. Now you have essentially f not just two parties, you have four different groups within two different houses, within two different essentially political cultures. From the point of view of designing an effective, aggressive, proactive decision-making apparatus, you've done exactly the opposite. Now, there are all kinds of good reasons. All of these things are solutions to other problems, but then they create problems themselves. If you came here wondering, like, well, why don't we have, and this was the, this was the program description, I actually looked at the website before I came over here tonight. Uh, the question was, why don't we have, despite having a relatively high level of consensus within the scientific community as to what is going on with climate change and what's causing it, and essentially, more or less, how much time we have to figure out how to reverse our carbon emissions, if we have that level of consensus, why don't we have anything like a climate change agenda, a policy agenda? That's why. Our decision-making apparatus, which is a solution to a very important set of problems and which actually has an awful lot of benefits, we don't necessarily want Congress to move quickly. We don't want to be able to have a committee. Imagine a committee of six people running the country and then we get to elect them and it switches six people, and then they, they, they have very few restraints on what they do. We could be zigzagging. Your taxes could go up, it could go down, it could go up, it could go down. There could be all kinds of differences. There's a healthcare system that's created. It's a different one that's created the next time. People get sick of that. They see the problems. They vote for someone else. The stability and long-term slow change works for a lot of areas of our life, and it does provide us with a solution to a problem, which is how do we let the people rule themselves without essentially going off the rails and zigzagging and, and allowing one democratically elected majority to do one thing and then two years later a different one to do another thing? So it's not a terrible thing that we have a status quo oriented Congress, that it takes an awful lot to move something big and that the conditions under which that can happen where both houses of congress have to be held by one party and there has to be a relatively high level of consensus within the party as to what the policies are going to be and there has to be a president who's willing to 
signed under the law. You don't get an Affordable Care Act. You don't get a Voting Rights Act. You don't get those things very often. That's frustrating, but it's, it does have a good side to it. It helps to solve one of our problems, which is how do we avoid a tyrannical government? How do we let the people rule themselves when the people are very short-term thinkers? But absolutely, when there is a major problem that needs to be addressed that requires an aggressive, proactive policy, our system is poorly designed for that. He swims with the fishes. Actually, he kind of pushes the fish around in a superhero sort of way. He sends out sound waves through the water and commands them to do his good bidding. Aquaman doesn't really have any special powers of his own. Other than this ability to command fish to do his good bidding. It's really the fish that have all the superpowers in this scenario. Aquaman just kind of has this little suit. It's orange. Gets in the water. Sends out his little sound waves. Commanding the fish to do his good bidding. head off stop the bad guy it's pretty simple really and yet Aquaman's the one that gets Wonder Woman not those fish it's alright though I don't think they'd know what to do with Wonder Woman if they had the chance